How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 139. Wow. You know, wow. That, the 11 left to another master. A big 150. Jeez. That did only just hit me the second you said it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Woo! Go back quickly. Let's go. Let's How go. How you doing, Jake? I'm tired, man. Yep. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to see by the lack of stuff I watched in the last week, but my God. The plan was <clears throat> to have, <clears throat> you know... Spread out, you know, my jobs, my gigs throughout each week, reoccurring gigs. It'll work. It's great. Get my weekends to myself. It mm. sounds great. It's not how it works. No. <laughs> things have deadlines and things ratchet up. But you know what? I think I'm over. I'm getting over the hump. How How are you doing? How are yeah, you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, had a busy couple of weeks. Yeah. So, same, same sort of boat. Um, doubt it's going to ease up anytime soon. But yeah, hopefully turn in a bit of a corner and... Going to get myself in a little mm. bit. I've been trying to give myself the weekends, like yeah, you know, yeah. like you said, but it has a tendency to <laughs> get swooped up with all kinds of stuff. Got to so. use all seven days in the week. Absolutely, that's how it works. Yeah. Do you have some trivia for me, Jake? I do. I do have some trivia about film of the week, The Lighthouse, which has been a long time coming. This might be one of the longest turnarounds in terms of a film that we've wanted to do and haven't gotten mm. to. I know, like Inside Llewyn Davis was one for you. Yes. But we got it within, like, 52 episodes. Um, Lighthouse has been a really long time coming. My fun fact of the week, and there are plenty of facts, unlike the last couple of weeks, <laughs> which have been sort of shy on trivia, there's a lot of trivia to get into this one. I wanted to focus on the seagulls, who are very important in this film. Yes. Um, none were harmed during the filming of this film, believe it or not. The scenes were filmed with puppets, who were then digitally replaced by the real seagulls, including train rescue seagulls in front of, like, a green screen. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And the reason I had to do it in front of a green screen uh, secluded was because they actually weren't allowed to be flown to Canada where they shot the film, which I thought was very strange. It was very interesting. But there you go. That's my fun fact. Well, you know, obviously, you know, the seagulls are a really important um, writing device in mm. that script. And speaking of the script, while writing the screenplay... Robert Eggers was listening to hours of YouTube videos of subwoofer rumblings, waves crashing, wind blowing, and foghorns. Subwoofer. Now, foghorns <laughs> will be playing a part in our conversation yeah. later in the show. Yeah, sure, so. there will be. No, get, you get yourself in the mindset. Mm. I like it. No sea shanties? No, but that's some pure immersion right there while yeah. riding. Um, that would make you go crazy. <laughs> um, he achieved his purpose, I think. But Zeke, this film's a little too recent to be on our poster of 1,100 films you must watch uh, once in your lifetime. I always forget, it's not before you die. That poster specifically says at least once in your lifetime. Yes. Um, <clears throat> now, I think this absolutely should be on that poster. Okay. If it went up to 2019. Do you agree with that? Um, Ooh. Ooh. For me, probably not. Interesting. I wouldn't put it in that list, I don't think. Okay. Um... I just think, um, and it's not like it's a bad film, but, you know, it's a prestigious club, I guess. And uh, for me, yeah, I'm going to get a lot of, I can already feel the encroaching <laughs> you fans. Feel, you can feel the walls closing yeah. on you. No, By the not pretentious film community. <laughs> I do not believe this. Um, 2019 was a big year for film. It um, was. There's a huge. few film references I'm going to make. Um, and if we're picking films from 2019... Um, that would be on that list. This would not make my cut. Damn. Well, that's considering the fact that, at least on this poster, there is no cap per year. 
It's not like you can only have five per year. I think it, it isn't unlimited. No, supply. but it was a big year. Twenty nineteen. It was a huge le- like, year. You know, off the top of my head, just mm. thinking of some of them, like you know, like the parasites and yeah, um, and you know, like the farewell and stuff mm. like that. Like those films for me. I'm actually curious. More. I'm going to quickly check. So I, I mentioned this last week. I first watched this right at the tail end of 2019. Um, when this came out, I think I actually got a little cheeky. I saw it before it came to our cinemas. It took a long time to come here, so granted, I couldn't wait much longer. I was very excited for this. A lot more fun cut gems. I mean, that's another one right there. Uncut gems, yeah. um, huge one. I'm going to look at my personal rank of 2019 films, which I haven't updated in a while. Lighthouse was number seven, so yeah, I have at least six films here, including Parasite, Portrait, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is funny because I gave it a lower grade than The Lighthouse, but I'm still putting it ahead in the list. So there's little contradictions there. That's why I don't like ranking so much. Mm. But it's in there. The other one is For Sama, which has an almost identical color palette. The poster. It's all dark and there you go. gloomy. But yeah. No, it's a big year though. Mm. They're like, that's a tough competition. And yeah, there isn't a cap. But if you've only got 1,100 movies and you've got to cover nearly 100 years of film. Yeah. Of, of um, sound cinema, then that's... That's a lot. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, I would definitely put it on my poster, but that's just me. That's just me. I got a few corrections and notices and <clears throat> things I want to mention before we jump into what we've been watching this last week. Um, I actually want to make a correction to myself. I think it's something I said. It, well, we were talking about Rick and Morty last week. Spicy. And how it takes um, a significant amount of time between seasons to address certain plot elements or to continue continuing threads i guess in the narrative i made the claim that the bird person episode season five episode eight was a continuation of something that didn't happen since season three's premiere which you know that's a huge chunk of time that's several Mm. years i'm actually wrong because they there is a middle point at the end of season four where they do um get bird person back into the garage and always phoenix person at the Mm. time so i wanted to point that out i i exaggerated how long it's been since they last addressed that narrative yeah. Fred. So I wanted to correct myself on that one. The other one, not so much a correction, but just an interesting thing. We talked before about the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer. Yes. And how it would have been way more interesting if they just toyed with the marketing a bit. They played with this idea of Peter Parker being unmasked. I want to give a shout out to the new Matrix uh, trailer, or the reveal, I mm. should say, because before they put out the trailer, they had the website and you click on the pill and you actually get different flashes and images of the trailer based on what time and which pill you clicked. So I want to give a little shout-out to them, because that's unique marketing we don't see these days. Yeah. So shout-out to The Matrix. Have you seen that trailer yet? I have not, but neither, that neither. sounds very interesting. And like you said, something that we're kind of absent of. Um, it's a tough... It's a, like, from what I've gathered, some people say it's got very John Wick feeling to it. Yeah, um, I, I've only seen glimpses of the trailer, and it, it looks way more like John Wick, at least, you know, at least the mm. more recent, like, Chapter 3 versions of John Wick than... Than the first Matrix does, at least. It's um, a tough jump. I mean, it's yeah. 20 years. And to be honest, like we've talked about in the show, I've only actually ever watched The Matrix. I haven't yeah, actually even seen uh, uh, Reloaded and Revolutions. So um, we'll definitely have to get around to them before the fourth one comes out. But Yeah, they're all on Netflix. So I'm keen to, yeah. to watch, yeah, two and um, three especially. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. Just wanted to shout out, because I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. We were just saying that a couple of weeks ago. We want we want more unique marketing campaigns. So that that's something, mm. something that got people talking. You know. Well, to move into what we've watched in the last mm. week, I have uh, completed season five of Rick and Morty. 
Um, so I oh, nice. watch the last two episodes. There you go. Did um, you sort of agree with me on the last, on the finale at least for season five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a metaphysical self awareness that the show has, mm. but it's always had that to an extent. Um, it's in, it's an interesting amalgamation of of various different films. The ending has almost an interstellar like moment in it too. With uh, oh yeah yeah. Where, um, that. which I find interesting. Mm. Um, I didn't hate the ending by any those last two episodes, but yeah. I didn't find myself laughing that much. Um, no, the only time I laughed during either is when when he puts the the liquid in the in the portal gun, and yeah. it's like weird liquid detected, which is okay. Yes. <laughs> I got one Just laugh out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was funny. Yeah. yeah, that was the one laugh I got out of that. Mm. But um, yeah, I think because that's the thing, it's always had that meta narrative, but it felt so aggro you know it almost felt like fine here you go like i don't think about it the same way i think about the season three premiere where that felt like awesome and like exciting and it's true yeah but i think at the end of the day i think the episode really comes from a from a place of mind where they they clearly want to make this show just a collection of non-sequential episodes that return to the norm at the end of the episode um, and the commentary they're going to have in the middle, like throughout that final episode is very clearly like, they're like, oh, this show's at its best when we're just doing wacky fun adventures, like one episode going to a purge planet or, right. or creating, you know, you know, Rick having sex with a planet and stuff like that, you know, like it's very clear, like that's what, you know, the creators want to do more. So then they've just kind of quickly wrapped up all of the backstory in a neat little bow, and and that's probably going to be the last time we ever get any form of like mm. um, sequential storytelling, which is fine, I guess. I mean, like you said, they've got an absurd amount of seasons they've got to make. They got they got at least fifty more episodes they're contracted to do. So, so. that's at least five seasons. Or which which is ironic because when I first heard my prediction at the time, we weren't doing the show when that announcement was made. But my prediction after season three was that the show was going to get cancelled, and not not because of any downward slope or anything. I just I was sort of cautious about that. Of like, well, you know, the show's at its height, but the, there's these other things going on. I feel like it might get cancelled, and someone else might pick it up. And then instead, it got picked up for seventy episodes, which was the exact polar opposite of what I predicted. But I was worried because I was like, oh no, now they have no reason to build towards this this longer um, serialized narrative because they. They, they don't have any reason to entice people with that. But then I guess they've kind of gone in the opposite direction yet again. Yeah. And like wrapped it up almost too quickly. Almost deliberately quickly. Yes. Like, yeah. Because they're clearly, it's something they don't want to do um, or really address. And, um, you know, like there, uh, there were like sequential storytelling happen, happening normally in episode nine of 10 of every season. Mm. And the first you know, seven or eight episodes would predominantly be dedicated to just a wacky adventure with yeah. these this collection of characters and um yeah it was just uh, but i didn't find the last two episodes funny but i don't mm. think they really wanted to be funny i think they just no. kind of wanted to just be like all right well we've got to do this let's you know let's just do this so i it's interesting it's like the discussion we had last week on the show where we were talking about like is that fair for them to be kind of that cynically critical of it's fan of what, base. of what their fan base oh, wants, yeah. Yeah, and that's probably not fair on the fan base at all, but it at the end of the day, 
they don't have to listen to their like they don't have no. to be so reactionary to their fan base either. Um, no. Well, they're like, they're really they're allowed to do whatever they want, really. Yeah, but it is interesting that they they they're so reactionary. You know, yeah. like you know, we take like South Park's model where it's so reactionary to the world around, like the real world. Right. Um, episodes come out within weeks of events, life events happening that are to give that relativity and they've been doing that now for you know 20 years and that, that there's definitely a reactionary there but the critique isn't coming from the they, they're not critiquing the fan base they're critiquing society and yeah and and which is different which is way different whereas this directly feels like a uh, like an animosity towards their own audience which is a little confusing and um but then the fact of the matter is the the audience might react the way that you know, re- react like poorly or offended, and the fact is, but they're still going to watch the episode. And well, then, then I mean, that's the thing is they might tear people away from watching the next season, but it also doesn't matter because well, they've got another fifty episodes booked ready to go. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if the ratings drop and like if, a bomb. If anything, the 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 episode is openly being like, well, now the next fifty episodes are just going to be fun collection, random stuff. I mean, the whole yeah, finding out Rick's origins, and then he's like. You know, his immediate reaction coming back to the quote-unquote real world is, ah, well, now people would shut up about it. It's like... Yeah, exactly. Uh, the line is openly uh, attacking the audience there, like, yeah. which is, you know, interesting. And then obviously having things like, well, this Rick is the Rickest Rick, like little... Yeah, well, that that's always been sort of a staple... Yeah. But now, now they they sort of taken that in a more literal way of like, oh well, here's why, like factually. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Interesting. Uh, if it's anything like this last season, they're actually gonna. I reckon they'll put out season six, probably next year. I reckon they actually could. I know they they usually take a very long time, but I reckon they're getting back on track. Sure. Um, the other the well, the only thing I've really seen this last week, there's something that people have been poking and prodding me for for a long while to watch, including yourself. I finally watched Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, part of the reason is because I got a new haircut. Yes. First time I've done this, I've shaved my head, but then kept the beard, which up until recently has just been very patchy and very gross. It's finally getting to mm. a somewhat decent place. Some would know. say you look like a character in Ex Machina. I, I, <laughs> maybe, especially with my glasses. I put those on now, actually. Because yeah. they're actually pretty similar to Oscar Isaac's glasses in that film. Yeah. So, there you go. I've completed the look. Oh, my God. I've always wanted to have a sit-down interview with Oscar Isaac. <laughs> Let's talk about your career, buddy. Yeah, anything except Star Wars. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, well, no. that being said. <laughs> well, that, well, that being said. Um, no. What well, did you do in episode nine? Oh, God. I cried. That's what I did. Um, yeah, so part of that was because you sent me that photo. And part of me is like, you know what? I'm going to get it in this week. I'm going to finally do it. And, like, everyone else has been saying, like, oh, my God, you got to watch it. And then... Everyone I've talked to this past week, and I finally watched Ex Machina. What, you've never seen Ex Machina before? Like, people go nuts. And it's funny, because I didn't really care for Annihilation, which is Alex um, Alex Garland's other film. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was a bit, like, leaned towards on, like, the big epic sci-fi-ness of it all and didn't have as much heart, just couldn't personally relate to it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's stuff I appreciate about that film. I love the um, the choreography of a very particular scene towards the end. That's fantastic. The blocking, the way it's shot, the... Um, it's a you know without dialogue, just organic visual storytelling. I love that scene, but that doesn't represent the rest of the film in yeah. any way, shape, or form. Um, this film 
felt more in line with what I was looking for. Like, it has, like, the interesting visuals and the blocking and the themes, especially. But it feels more like a, a, a smaller interpersonal story that I really appreciate. I like the characterizations of, um, you know, your two leads. I like sort of their... Um, obviously, it's an employer and employee uh, relationship dynamic, but then you also have, like, the actual character moments of him reading out the non-disclosure agreement out loud, nervously, and then Oscar Isaac's, like, making all these movie references to Ghostbusters. He's just got this, like, cool energy to him. Yeah. You know, real rich CEO. Um, I don't want to say Elon Musk vibe, but, like, you know, that's who you sort of point to in terms of a tech god, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I liked all of those elements, but then in terms of the wider themes, I thought all the stuff with Ava as, I guess, like an android who, they you know, they're testing her intelligence and how does she communicate with the humans. I thought that was all excellent. And especially because it was all revolved around this one shot that really spoke to me. I feel like, did I, have I talked to you about this off the show? I think you did, yeah. Yeah, so the shot I'm thinking of is when um, it's Caleb, the Caleb, the lead actor, he's, well, the, the character, I should say, Looking for the security. Domhnall Gleeson. Domhnall Gleeson, thank you. Looking through the, the security cam. And Ava sort of... I mean, you know, we go to find out how much she's all-knowing towards the end of the film, but she sort of does that pose and looks directly into the lens. And now there's that scopophilia there. Or, or I wanted to talk about the... um Specifically the... Oh, God, why am I blanking on it? Fetishistic voyeurism. Well, well I'll, get, I'll get to that specific, I guess... It's not a genre. What's the term I'm looking for? I guess a, a theory. Yeah, that it's theory, a theory. Um, film theory. Yeah, God, I, I must have wrote it down. What am I? It's a screen theory. Yeah. Yeah, what's the screen theory? The um, voyeurism. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, voyeurism. The voyeurism side of it. My God, that took me a minute. Because uh, it reminded me of Real Window in a lot of ways, and that has a lot yeah. of voyeurism film themes in it, of course, as well. Um, but just that idea of not only is he as a character looking at her and like basking in her glory, mm-hmm. but then we as an audience are watching. Um, as well, and th- there's always this interesting thing of like looking at people through monitors and screens and lenses, and like they can't see that you're looking at them, but you can look at them. You know, they're not going to make the eye contact. Like that the whole angle of voyeurism, which I really find fascinating. Um, but what's interesting? So I'll get back to the term that you just mentioned, which yeah, is kind of a bitch to pronounce, isn't it? Um, because it's not even just fetish; it's fetish, fetishistic, fetishistic. Ooh, got close. Fetishistic scopophilia which I'll bring up to page 74. And I mentioned, we've talked, I've done, uh, I've talked about this book on our Dick Johnson's Dead episode. This is when we did in our film theory class together. But what they describe with that specific theory or that idea, um, and I want to get the name of the girl. He actually brought this up. So I'm looking for uh, Laura Malvey, M-U-L-V-Y. So it was her idea of the fetishistic scopophilia and the idea that you're gazing upon this woman of such beauty and virtue that she can't possibly pose a threat to any of the male characters, which I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending to Ex Machina very much tells you who has the agency in the story, who is a threat to whom, and I love that subversion mm. of how that all plays out. So that was the main thing that really stuck out to me. Like, wow, this is really awesome, really clever, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just even the way they shot it and the way they motivate the sci-fi elements whether it's through sound or the way they would light the walls sort of these um you know crystal neon new, uh, neon bright blues or the vibrant blues or like you know when you press on the wall it's like beep, 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 just those little things that sell the sci-fi aesthetic because this film was what 15 million dollar budget which it's 15 million dollars but 
compared to other sci-fi films, it's not a lot. You're sort yeah. of looking at early Blade Runner territory of, you know, how do we make this look like a whole new world? And I think they did that in a really interesting way, which I appreciated. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's really great. It's a really good precursor to, like, shows like Westworld. Like, mm, right. Um, they really go hand in hand, um, sort of. Um, and I was a big fan of Ex Machina. I think it's just a really good cast, too. Um, yeah, very clever so, cast. Or casting, um, I should say. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you finally got that off the blacklist. Yeah, that that was the big... I think that and obviously Blade Runner 2049 were the recent ones. Now, if I go on Letterboxd, the main... Like, if I click on most popular films, that first page mm-hmm. is all blanked out now. So it's done. Nice. That's great. Florida Project's next, which would have been a good one to watch for this show based mm. on its casting, but didn't have time, unfortunately. Mm. That was it. But Ex Machina, you're right. Big one. Ticked off the list now. There you go. So well, unfortunately, bit. that's all I watched in the last week too. Ah, oh, that's fair. Quite weak. <laughs> War suffering. War suffering. I love yeah. it. Do you have anything you'd like to add into the career section? Yeah, sure. Well, it's actually another ironic thing because we were talking last week about filming sports, whether it be like the actual live broadcast that we watch on TV versus how film shoot sports. And yes. obviously, we talked about Streamline last week's so swimming, but we also talked a bit about footy. Which is ironic because I shot my first footy game yesterday. Look at that. Yeah. And <laughs> it was tough, I tell you. It was tough. Fast but, pace. Uh, yeah, it's very fast. It was funny because obviously you've got your background with the umpiring mm. um, high schoolers. And, and I was filming these. I was like, I wonder if Zeke's here. I wonder if he's umpiring. Move the camera around. So <laughs> find you. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was each quarter I got progressively better at at sort of catching the ball with the camera and stuff. I realized that when... So if someone boots the ball down the field, it's actually easier to look up physically at the ball and, like, just follow and track it with the camera, basically just gun gunshotting it. Mm. And then usually it actually works pretty often. You land right on the person who's about to mark it or whatever the case be. Oh, um, a bit of live broadcast. Yeah. That was Lovely. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But I figured just because we talked about last week... No, it's, and, um, I think it, I, it's uh, it's interesting to explore mm. sort of broadcast uh, filming and such. You know, watching the AFL final coverage has been fascinating. Yeah. How good some of the camera work they've been doing. Is, it's is, an art. It's an art. I yeah. hope they get paid well. I imagine they would. Probably they, get paid, yeah, probably decent decent money. I'd say. Yeah, hopefully. Wouldn't yeah. have to travel too. I imagine uh, you'd not, probably just stay at Optus. <laughs> Um, yeah, cool. All right. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Lighthouse. What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. But... What? 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 What?
Two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. Oh, spooky. The film is directed by Robert Eggers, who's probably most commonly known now for either this film or The Vitch. The Vitch. The Vitch. I love that. I would say it's... it's <laughs> well, it's, it says witch, right? Yeah. It's, I, it's, I mean, stylistically, it's two Vs. Yes. So I, I like to call it The Vitch as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, I haven't seen the, it. That's probably on my one of my blacklists. Oh, interesting. Because I, I know that film um, has its fans. It's uh, funny because I want to say I watched it pretty recently, but it was actually last Halloween, mm. like the week we did our. It's like that in Midsummer. I just haven't gone around oh, to it. Midsummer's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. definitely. Gonna, you know, that's going to be like that's in the lighthouse category of episode that has to happen eventually. I'm wondering because I put lighthouse at seven. Where did I put? Oh, Midsummer at ten. There Look at go. that, pretty pretty similar train of right there. Same sort of, uh, well, although I haven't seen it, I imagine mm. it's got that same sort of uh, horror undertone to it and really takes a turn. Yeah, um, well, well, it's actually funny. The, the main contrast, I'll say, is actually the lighting and the visuals because Mitsumara is like super bright and is pretty much primarily shot during the day. So it, it kind of contrasts the horror while this film sort of leans into it 100% visually. Yeah. But yeah. So, Zeke, you opened up the show. Now, Let's this is... Find my... Sorry. Oh, yeah, your, your, your letterbox review. I got one too this week because okay. my, my, maybe my favorite letterbox review of all time is on this film, so I have to mention it. But the start of the show, I said this would absolutely make my 1,100 films you have to watch. Before you die a gruesome death, I'm going to bring death back into into the poster. <laughs> Now, you don't think so, which I think is interesting because it's a very well-renowned film and definitely within our circles. People love this film. So, not saying that you hate it, but I'm wondering what what about it didn't quite tick or click for you okay. if we're going to jump right into well, that, I guess. Um, I mean, this film's just about dudes being dudes, right? Um, <laughs> and not to spill the beans or anything. Um, no, no, of course not. But I'll go with my the one for this week. Um, there is a lot of comments for this, so this right. is. You have to pick. But I choose. like this. the The way Willem Dafoe spends five minutes cursing Robin Patterson because he he keeps saying he doesn't like his cooking. <laughs> dot 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 cinema. <laughs> I thought that was really good. You're not fond of um, me, that's lobster. Saborn on uh, uh, on Letterbox. So that's my Letterbox pick for the week. Yeah. Comment of the week. Um, why didn't this click now? I think the, you know, we talk about it at the height of the show that 2019, big year yeah. um, for cinema. And this film is interesting because of its sort of horror undertones there. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's definitely a film after watching it, I did have to sort of digest and then mm. proceed to go on an, uh, you know, an investigation of what did I just watch? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think, um, you know, for me, horror is not like a go-to genre for me, and I right, don't neither. think this is this is like overtly horror. It's definitely way more psychological horror. Mm. Um, 
and kind of like almost like I, I so the reason why I probably wouldn't put this on the list or I haven't thought of it as highly as as other people in our circles who adore or even obsessively love this film mm. um is cuz I think you know we've we've talked a bit about like your Yorgos Lanthimos sort of yeah yep. um way of tackling horror in in quirkier ways um because you would say you know like films like the lobster and 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 dog tooth do have their horror elements yeah to for them. sure um it, like it's, killing the sacred deer is probably his most horrific film in a lot um, of ways and i think that they i like the way they tackle it more um and i really wish i'd given the the witch uh or the witch uh, a watch before <laughs> too because um then i could really grab you know grasp sort of egger's direction with this film right um they're very similar uh, direction wise in terms of the way he uses horror with like creepy visuals the way animals are used to sort of horrify and torment protagonists or human characters um the only thing and i would give this film the edge i like this more than the vich and the reason is because i feel like it utilizes more of the film palette the the tools right you know i've, I've talked about this forever it's the reason that um punch drunk love is my favorite pta film is because I feel like it utilizes, you know, cinematography and framing and mise en scene and editing and sound and or in more interesting ways than these other films do, which mo- for the most part are just very straightforward. Here's an excellent, excellent narrative, and we're going to play it straight and let the performances speak for themselves. Mm. And I think th- this is comparable to the Vich, and with the performances are excellent all around. But I think this says so much more of its cinematography and sound than the Vich does. I think that's why I mm. like this one a little bit more. But Even like films. I'm thinking of ending things like that mm-hmm. tackles yeah. horror in a in an interesting way too, and and I think that the, those films just connect a little bit more with me, right. um, for sure. I think my favorite part, actually, even first reformed, um, was a film that sprung to mind, and it wasn't just because of the the almost borderline square aspect ratio, which first reformed yeah. has too. Okay, um, but sort of the ways of of you know, tying in these religious or, in this case, more mythology, uh, mythological yep. um, stories and anecdotes and parallels and kind of conforming that to, like, the horror of the human condition too. Mm. Um, I find that stuff really interesting, but for me, I think the strengths of this film lie in its cinematography and its sound mixing. They're the things that really yeah. stick out for me. The script... Um, is not something. If there's any, not not that it's a detraction, but it's not a mind blowing script to me. Right. Um, it's funny you mention that because I have my written review of this film from, I guess, nearly two years ago now, and I actually I'm gonna find it. I actually did make a note when rereading this review, be like, huh, I kind of had a little bit of a dig at the screenplay. Not like a dig, but I made a point of saying it's out of all the elements: performance, direction, cam work, production design. Script was probably towards the bottom of it. I would say it's th- like the bottom. Like, Interesting. Now, when you now, I'd like to be very clear. That doesn't mean the script's bad. That just means of that. Of course, yeah. If, if anything's kind of detracting from it, I actually think the script is the thing, and it's because there are little things like obviously Eggers went for full immersion with his you know his screenplay. He wanted mm. the rhetoric and the vernacular to be very much of that time and yeah. of that context and. Of course, some of those words and stuff haven't translated over time, which 
can make at times it quite difficult to follow what the conversation yeah. is. I was going to say, did you watch this with subtitles? No, and I wish I did. I thousand percent. The second time I learnt, I was like subtitles from the from the word jump because and and the, and the version I watched as well in twenty nineteen was quite quiet as well. Like mm. I remember it being like, this needs to be louder. So yeah, um, it's, it's especially a Willem Dafoe. Sometimes he is just impossible to understand. <laughs> And I know that that's kind of actually the point in Excel, mm. like because you know Patterson, his character of 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 Tom or you know Winslow, if it's the first half of the film, yeah, right? yeah, um, is how can we call him Winslow just to make it Winslow to make it easier, more easier for us? Yeah, um, he is our stand. We're him basically. Yeah. We're his descent to madness is our descent to madness, and um, you know from the, the very points that we have POV shots. You know, he's the only one who gets mm. POV shots. Yeah. Um, I love the one where he's painting the lighthouse. He's on that little hoist mm. thing. And, like, when we look up at um, Thomas... Is it Wake? Thomas Wake. Yeah, we so look- we're, for sake of argument, let's go with Wake and Winslow. Yeah, yeah, Because they're yeah. both Tom. Oh, yeah. They're both W as well. Yeah. Look at that. Um, but, like, that POV shot looking up, and it's almost like a triangle shape of the rope with him centred in that triangle <laughs> and just stuff like that. I was like, yeah. that's a dope shot. And it's a POV shot. Yeah, I think they actually do. I, I might have to detract that. I think they both do get POV shots, but Possibly. it's definitely um, more important that, uh, um, of Winslow's POV yeah. shots. He's um, definitely... You're right, he's a surrogate for us, easily. Yeah, and um, I think, yeah, I, I just think the thing that doesn't resonate with me out of all of it is probably the screenplay, because, like I said, that true to vernacular is, is a pro, but it can be a con, because it can make sometimes... Um, you know, your viewing experience is a little ambiguous, um, like, and, and tough to follow at times. Um, I think all the other elements are so strong that something is going to be a quote, the weakest link. And I think that's the thing that sticks with me. I think the, you know, like all of the different quote unquote theories about what this film is trying to represent or what's happening. Mm. I think, at its purest form, it probably is most likely just the anecdote of the Greek mythology one. Like, I right. think that's almost identical in its story. Like, to the you know to the very point that of Winslow's fate is literally the ending of, of Prometheus. Too. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's not as smart as like i think look it's a it, very intimidating film to watch knowing that there's going to be a lot of you're right callbacks and, and references and and anecdotes in that way but i think when you actually start going through it you're like well m- most of this is greek mythology it's yeah, like, this character from greek mythology this character like prometheus greek, for example prometheus um, and prometheus oh the, uh, yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember who willem defoe's one's meant to be what's well, funny because the one i compared and i haven't read this but this is the one i made the note of is when Robert Patterson's bringing up the barrel Proteus, I think up the stairs. Oh, yeah, Proteus. Um, for some reason, I remember there being a scene where he actually drops it down the stairs, and he like he's frustrated. He's like, "Ah, oh, damn it!" I don't. I think I must have imagined that scene. But when I watched it initially, him bringing the barrel up, I think it's a, a container, I should say, of oil. And it actually reminded me of um, Sisyphus, uh, who's also from Greek mythology, the guy who has to drag the boulder up the hill but it's always rolling back down and it's mm. sort of a, a doomed repetitious fate which is also the same fate that Prometheus has in terms of a repetitious suffering yes um, and yes. I think that's sort of generally where this film lies from yeah I, I just think it's like you know the mixing is is uh, 
everything I think contributes to the 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 technical side all contribute to this sort of this enigma this enigma the enigma Jesus mm. my god we're, we're struggling today <laughs> we're <some> what <laughs> sorts of words um yeah exactly um the enig- yeah like the enigma <laughs> of of the horror like the the subtle um introduction of that sort of stuff that's all to do with camera and mm, yeah. um honestly you know actoral performance and sound mixing that's that's where i think the strengths lie um but the screenplay is is something that you know it's pretty by the numbers i think everything you think's going to happen in it, and sometimes it's it it does lose its subtlety i think Okay. Um, for example, like th- cause and effect of what some characters do is very, you know, what's kind of going to happen beforehand. It's like the, the one eyed seagull and, you know, the, the previous mm. wiki that was serving with wake, you know, also only had one right. eye and it went mad yeah. and went mad. And then on top of that, it's, uh, you know, don't, don't mess with seabirds. And you kind of know, as soon as that scene happens, you're like, well, we know what's going to happen to the seabird. Yeah, that's you know? a, oh, that's such a great scene. Um, just annihilates that seagull. <laughs> yeah, and it holds on it. Um, it's. I think that, and then the play-by-play there is, um, and I think only does the writing kind of pick up. I think or become a little bit more compelling, more in like the last th- uh, after that his quote-unquote last night uh, on the station. I think right. that's when it takes a turn and really you start to see a bit more not intelligent intelligence is the wrong word but it's stuff that's more interesting and, and gripping whereas right. everything else up to that point is you kind of see it's a little predictable it's a little obvious you know there's old sea captains who's clearly you know mm. worn from his industry you know, the characters get more interesting and compelling the longer it goes on which means that i feel like the writing becomes more compelling and interesting yeah as well the, that, that's definitely where the, the the sort of the downward spiral happens into, into madness and you know, you have that as well, where like when when the house is like flooding and their surrounding environments are all falling apart along with them, and the nightmares get more intense, and that's when the editing comes in there. Um, so I I I don't disagree with that in terms of the way it ratches forward and it it does more interesting things with the characters. I guess. I mean, I was enticed the whole way through, but I also understand where you're coming from, where like the setups and the payoffs are sort of beat for beat. Um, I think mean, because yeah, I'm not really paying attention to the script so much as the 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 visual presentation. Sure, but you know, um, we're I can about forgive it. Yeah, every element of analysis here, and and I don't can't really fault the, um, you know, the sound mixing, like and that haunting foghorn that's repeating mm-hmm. there, and what the importance of sound that this film has, um, right up to its very final shots where. Um, the mixture of non-diegetic and and sort of uh, diegetic sounds, you know, where things like the distortion of someone's laughter in the latter oh, stage of the, is brilliant. It's yeah. so deliberate and overt, but it's it's creative and mm. makes a hundred, you know, makes it's motivated. So, um, I can't fold that. And and the cinematography, the aspect ratio is great. I love mm. films that play with aspect ratio but they don't do it for the sake of playing with it there's a motivation yeah um, yeah the, think... the, the thing that i took about because yeah it's a near perfect square i think it's 1.19 and i think the reason i kind of skimmed over it in the trivia thing but i think it's to do first off it's replicating the f- format of the very early sound films 
And I think it's to do with the way sound was printed into the actual film negatives that would play in the cinema. And that's why you have that aspect ratio. Yeah. So I guess it's not a perfect one-to-one because they needed room to put the sound in. Like, that's my understanding yeah, of it. I'm I, not sure. I think First Reform is the only one that was more square than that f- that film. Yes. Interesting, yeah. That I watched because I think First Reform was 1.6. Like it, it's, right, yeah. It's just square. Um, <laughs> well, the, the the thing I noticed about this is like it, you have that aspect ratio, which is quite you know closed and restrictive. At least you know the wide stuff, widescreen stuff we were used to. Um, you had the black and white. Obviously, there's not a lot of movement with the camera. Every now and then, for effect, like when he when he is killing the seagull, that's like one of the only prominent smooth camera movements in the whole thing. Is when it's, we sort of back up and sort of uh, pan around. Well, not pan, but I guess track around him. Um, but for the most part, we're on locked-off tripods and that. Um, for cinematography that's so restrictive, I was shocked at how much it actually has to say about the story. Like, it says so much while being so restrictive and confined. I think, I like, much, ele- <laughs> much, excuse me, much mm. elements of this film, Eggers was really striving for a pure, the closest thing you could get to literally living in that time. Yeah. Um, like, he's going for contextual authenticity. I mean, it, it, from the aspect ratio of like the early, you know, pictures of documenting, you know, that nineties, nineteen tens sort of like documentarian stuff to, um, you know, the way they, the dress there, their style, the clothing, the, the set dressing, the elements are all there. And, and I think it really sells home in those first five or 10 minutes when they finally, they're right. When they arrive at the lighthouse and there's that moment where they have that fourth wall break, stare yeah i oh yeah um, i love this shot this yeah. stare down and it it it's what it's trying to do is basically almost show that they're taking a photo uh, that's exactly gives, what i wrote down yeah. exactly because um, that's how long it would take to get a photograph in the late 1800s yeah and it and you look at them yeah. and there's a moment there is a pure second that you're you completely forget that these are actors in a film you're yeah. not looking at like at some archival footage of these to see, you know, these wikis from the yeah, you know, yeah. the, the turn of the, the century, and you can't, especially Willem Dafoe is really like he's posture, pierce, yeah, piercingly. I mean, it's right here. This is the that's the image right here we got on the computer. Gorgeous, but like just staring into your soul. But yeah, it's almost like posing for a photograph, and it's motivated by they're watching the the ship leave, which you see after the fact. But until then, you rest on this shot. That was the exact takeaway I took. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Man, that was a juicy rating if you've been at um, <laughs> My four and a half star review. Yeah, I think only one under four on my... Uh, Damn. Yeah, it's <laughs> tough, isn't it? Um, no, look, that's fine. I mean, like, I think that's a valid point is that the script, even though the presentation around it is so, you know, magnificent and authentic, yeah, the, there were beats that you frankly saw coming. I think it's totally fair criticism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it's trying. Like, I, I think in terms of for both of them, I, I think there's films from uh, the last couple of years that I, I'm just more compelled by from both of them, right? Um, individually, um, I think they're really good together in this. Um, they're a great pairing. Oh, they're brilliant. Um, and I don't really know. I couldn't picture anyone else doing either role. So, mm, interesting. Um, it's it is quite fascinating um it's just uh, yeah you know can't can't like them all i guess but um, <laughs> i can, can kind of see andrew garfield maybe playing the winslow role 
I could. I couldn't see anyone. I don't know who else could play Defoe's character. Mm. Wake. I can't think of well, anything. He play because you could definitely go into that stereotype sort of sea captain esque vibe with him. But one of my favorite scenes is when he shows. I mean, we made fun of you know you're not fond of me lobster scene, mm. but there's a genuine vulnerability he has there that I don't know if anyone else could pull off the way that he pulls it off. Yeah, maybe if Anthony Hopkins was 20 years younger, <laughs> honestly, could see yeah. him doing something quite, um, but it would, but it's the, it's the heart, yeah, it is the roughness of him, mm. um, and yeah, Defoe has that vulnerability in that moment where he gets really upset, like, yeah. not in a, you feel bad not in a masculine him. macho way, you know, he looks like he's about to cry, like, yeah, this, yeah. like, and it shows how you know kind of how empty both their lives are um and of course you know as the the film goes on we find wake constantly changing his backstory yeah and, and yeah. winslow completely lying about his <laughs> and um and which the only things they seem to come back to and have any form of connection are to this this light this mm. this oil fueled um beacon that you know sort of illuminates and, and withstands all of the, the, the hell that they endure. Yeah. I think it's funny because, like I said, watching it the first time, you know, the sound was a little bit low and it was hard to understand some of the accents at times. Um, so it was really great to have subtitles this time. Um, and then there being so many elements and almost being intimidated by where to focus on. I guess the stuff with the light kind of went over my head the first time because watching it the second time, it was very overt from the beginning. Like, okay, this is the focal point. The employer is in control of the light, and he he almost convinces him. He's like, oh, well, that you know, that's you don't want that job. That's the harder job. I got to be up all night. I got to be guarding it. You know, you're up during the day. He almost convinces you know the laborer that you know him shoveling shit, you know, across the island and 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 doing all of these like groundwork that's obviously very exhausting, very painful. That that's almost like. Oh no! Well, you you want to be doing that, so I love the hierarchy there. And it takes a little while for them to even first off, it takes ages for them to even reveal their own names to each other, even the fake names. I think I think we don't learn Thomas Wake's name until like forty five minutes in, yeah. which I thought was very interesting. Even the subtitles just say like keeper until until the reveal. Much like much like much like a good script does. I like when scripts like hide names until it, they're yeah. revealed properly. Um, I try to do that when I can as well, but I think that employer-employee relationship is relatable in a really weird way. Now, I'm, I've never had a boss quite like Thomas Wake. <laughs> but, yeah, it, but, but like, that that attitude where he's, like, he passes on all of the, the, the obstacles and challenges to his employee. You know, ah, oh, well, I'm going to dock your pay if you don't do this. Or, yeah. you know, this that attitude. And it's like, I've seen Especially that Especially in the latter stages when you find out of mm-hmm. all of the the critical reviews he was giving uh, Winslow. Yeah, and the, yeah, the little notes. Completely <laughs> gaslighting him. Um, oh, that's the worst. Yeah, it's weirdly it's, relatable, even though like it's wrapped around this presentation of something that's so far from our mm-hmm. imaginations in terms of the location, the time period, the type of work they're doing. Like, the, I don't think either of us work in a job that's, that's labour-intensive. No. But we can Especially still... Especially now that yeah. I'm the management over the... <laughs> <laughs> Are you Thomas Wake I'm, now? I'm the Wake now. Oh no! <laughs> oh, no uh, one works as hard as me. <laughs> you're the keeper of the light, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, not doing what Wake was doing in back yeah. office. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Oh. So hey. uh, you know, speaking yeah, of what yeah. Wake was doing, um, 
<laughs> oh no. Jake, you gotta you gotta help me out because yeah, okay. I can get the Greek mythology, you know, right. the Proteus, yep. Prometheus stuff. Got it as soon as I saw that, right? Um, I think that very much that's the, what the story is. It's an anecdote for that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, uh, so, you know, it's that parallel anecdote. Um, I don't think this is like a purgatory thing. Like some people have pitched it as like they're oh, both in purgatory. And... I mean, I could see the argument, but it's not as overt. Like the, literally having seagulls picking at Robert Patterson's chest that's a pretty overt visual. Well, and the whole thing that sea but, seagulls are, you know, lost sailors. Right, yeah. And obviously finding the, the dead one-eyed head of the previous wiki. Yeah. Like, um, those aren't stretches. Uh, those and, are in and, the film, clearly. Yeah, so there's very clearly, like, and the whole point of him being picked apart by sailors only to probably become, who will eventually become a seagull himself. Right. Um, uh, the other one is that, you know, both of the Toms are just the older and younger versions of themselves and they're in purgatory doomed to repeat yeah. that cycle of of death and destruction. It's funny because watching this the second time, I vaguely remember that being, are they the same person? I guess that along with him dropping that, there was a lot of things that I thought I remembered being in the film mm. that weren't. I, that's a good theory that they're both the same person, they're both named Thomas. I think that's based on another it is. story. It's based on a true story. The, the two well, Thomases. There's a st- the story where this starts. Now, it's not based on a true story, but the origins right. of Egger's script came from, yeah, a, a story in which two lighthouse keepers, both named Tom. Yeah, so that's where they um, come from. In, like, this time, one of them died in the in the middle of, of their the sort storm. of their, their, their storm. Yeah. And they had to... You know, he didn't want to get in trouble and it looked suspicious, so he proceeded to put him in a coffin out in the middle of the storm and then apparently... The storm was so great, it destroyed the coffin and it just ended up this dead body, like, flapping in the wind like a flag, apparently. Um, which would be quite grimace, yeah. <laughs> I imagine. Um, yeah, and, then they got, and then they got rescued and, and the body was taken back. But Yeah, cool. Um, my, my question, well, my, my guess is your question is to do with the tentacle mermaid You are stuff. 100% correct. <laughs> what is Davy Jones' locker coming out on top of the... On top of the lighthouse, is that yeah, what that it's is? I'm not familiar. I mean, I'm not that I'm that familiar with Greek mythology in the first place, let alone this stuff or this side of it. I think that mostly just feeds into the madness that that um, Winslow's going through. Because the scene that I think of, and this is, I love the editing, the scene where he's. It's one of the last scenes where he's masturbating, and he's got obviously that figure there. And I think that part of that's all like the envy and the isolation of being in an island without any women around. It's him and this other guy. And there's this moment where they almost sort of kiss and then push each other off. So there's a bit of that masculinity that kicks in there. Just dudes being I, dudes. Yeah, just dudes being dudes, exactly. I think, and like, I don't know if it goes that much further than just simply he's lonely and horny. And those are sort of the images that have come in that maybe have some sort of sexual appeal, but then turn horrendous now that the tentacles are sort of strangling him. And I... And I, me- I remember hearing a lot about this um, prosthetic of the uh, <laughs> of the mermaid vagina. I actually remember now how much people talked about that before going into this mm. film, and, and it was almost like the a flash. Robert Patterson uh, phallic yeah. <laughs> uh, moment. Oh goodness! I think I, I think the, it doesn't the final film. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I was telling you that earlier, but I read that the idea was that they would they would intercut or match cut the lighthouse silhouette with an erect penis by Mr. Robert Patterson himself. But that was the deal is he had to cut that in order to get his 
black and white 1.19 by 1 dreams to make that a reality he had to cut that stuff so it didn't get too high of a rating which is fine I know friend of the show Jack Betts disappointed by that he, he's still waiting to see Robert Patterson's penis but okay well <laughs> I don't think it needs it I think the, the, yeah. the subtext is there uh, same thing with the the, the siren or the mermaid uh, right it's very well, clear like that sort of stuff once again I, I don't think it's as uh, smart or it's, it's you know they're two guys hanging out like in a lighthouse and yeah the isolation would play into the the madness i think it's a um i don't think you need things like showing genitalia on screen to really mail home that point that was very clear right my, uh, my only point was if they were gonna have the mermaid like nudity then you might as well have a bit of male nudity in there too let's just let's have a bit of equality here you know what i'm saying yeah that would be my i I don't even think the nudity was necessary at all right right. fair enough very clearly there i mean from the moment when he finds even when he finds the mermaid figurine in the first five minutes and it's in a hole in the bed i'm like Mm. okay i get the uh, the hole in the mattress and it's in a very like it's not up high on the mattress it's in the (laughs) The lower it's mid not regions, the pillow or anything, you know, no. and it's like okay, I get it. Lonely men living in a in a phallic looking lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It's I get it all. No, that, that's um, fair enough. It's all I, there. I think part of it is because it's not even so much. We talked, excuse me, earlier about the horror in this film, and you know, to what extent is it actually horror? I think there's a lot of visual horror in here, even if it's not overtly scary. I think mean, those can be two different things, but I think part of having you know the genitalia or even just like taboo imagery sure yeah i, I think that plays into that horror Absolutely. so you're probably right yeah. um with that um and i think 100 percent. i think horror i think we've almost we because of like 80s and 90s horror mm. where we we kind of have lost sight that horror is not jump scares or big slasher monsters chopping people up you right. know it, it horror is is like i said it's commenting on the it points just as simply as commenting on on how messed up humans can be like re- in realistic circumstances, like mm. this, like when we think about this, like although yeah, it, it does go pretty far and, and pretty brutal at times. It, it, isolation does make uh, or can make monsters of us. You know, we've even seen that in the last couple of years. How mm. d- desperate the mental conditions gone from being locked in our own houses in a in a place of yeah. safety and Some, shelter, yeah, let alone. Inside. Let alone taking us, <laughs> let alone putting us in a place that's foreign and away and isolated from humanity. I yeah. mean, well, that that plays into the capitalistic part as well because he Winslow talks about that. He's like, the further away you go, the more money it is, and I want to set myself up and be on my own house and have no boss. Um, so there is those capitalistic elements in there too, in terms of the labor and the boss. But yeah, and the other thing I want to mention in regards to you talking about like what we perceive as horror in like an eighties or 70s, 80s context, I thought of when we talk about the Foghorn, especially in the opening scene, uh, it reminded me a bit of The Exorcist. And even though The Exorcist is a lot of that, that you know, visual horror aspect, one of the things people don't talk about enough, and this was something I wrote in my first year essay that we that we had to do in our classes. Which, which film did you do again? For first year? Trainspotting. Trainspotting, very nice. Um, See, so yeah, I did Exorcist, and the thing I talked about was how even though the, the frets, the evil that's in, in Reagan in terms of what they're going to have to do an exorcist on later is confined to her bedroom, you can still hear her screeches and moans and cries across the whole house. So even when the characters are downstairs having a conversation, 
her presence is still there sonically and the and the foghorn reminded me of that a lot in those early scenes mm. um so even just subtle ways of horror even in the 80s um well you know exorcist sorry is 74 or 73 yeah. early 70s but even then I'm, I'm seeing hints of that in here as well which i think is really cool really clever for sure do you have anything else you'd like to add jack yeah i reckon well one let's say one of the other things i noticed that more so the second time than the first time is sort of the the literal consequences and what i mean is obviously when he kills the seagull you know that's objectively the moment when you know shit hits the fan mm-hmm. and now he sort of cursed himself and he's going to get cursed you know by his boss a couple of more times throughout the film but that that is objectively i guess the end of the first act or the point when things are going to shift and we see that by a literal change in the wind we see the thing point I think it's pointing north instead of um, Completely south. Completely goes the opposite way. Yeah, exactly. doesn't 180. Exactly. Um, but I like that it ends up being that physical change in the environment that actually causes a lot of the other things to happen. So, for example, the boat not returning, that's obviously because of the storm that he's, like, inadvertently caused by killing the seagull. Yeah. So I like those, like, literal things it does. The other one, which I think is a little more subtle, is even just him possibly being used to throwing out like their their outings or their poo bags or the buckets, if you will. And the fact that he's probably not used to the wind being blown in that direction, so when he throws it and it goes right into his face, that's a consequence of killing the seagull. Like, those little things. His scream. physical interaction. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> it does it, there's like a good three or four seconds of just him stewing in it. <laughs> and you're just like... You put your hand over him, like, yeah. like he is just about to just snap. Now. Yeah, <laughs> and he just lets out that guttural scream. Oh. And you're like, yeah, look, you know what? To be Fair honest, Fair enough. <laughs> exactly. And I read apparently that was inspired by a very similar scene in the Big Lebowski, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> Except the ashes, it's the ashes. In the yes, place. I think that's what the, they're referring to. That's but... a fantastic scene. That's played for. <laughs> I feel like that's. I mean, they're both kind of played for humor. I would say. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's a humorous, humor. uh, a sick sense of humor in both. Mm, yeah, um, for sure. Well, it's interesting because compared to the Vich, I don't, I don't recall any moments of humor. And you got you in here, you got like moments like that. Even the trivial with the farts, like there's these slight little moments of levity and the, and the. Their oh yeah, like him wanting funny. to fornicate with a steak. Or oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Or the whole it's not like, liking someone's monologue. cooking and then yeah, him getting yeah. kind of really upset about that. It, yeah. It really is like, now. to an extent, or at least in the first bit, it's just people hanging out with each other. Like, yeah. Um, it's actually quite... Like, obviously, the labor stuff is really frustrating, like when he's getting abused about not cleaning the floors enough. Um, and that's a great direct thing to what I was saying about, like, the eternal suffering is he even has that monologue of, like, if I ask you to tear down this lighthouse and build it back up, you will do it. And I thought that was a cool, like, clever... Okay, no, that's definitely reaffirming that idea. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I thought that was that was awesome. The last comparison I make to The Vich is... And I won't spoil it, but the ending of The Vich involves a certain ascending into the air. And, of course, one of the last shots in this film is a, is a literal downward spiral mm-hmm. as he... Uh, tumbles down the stairs <laughs> i'm clever i'm smart yeah and then it's actually <laughs> proceeded with a pull out push up shot yeah exactly the so there's, a bit of, there's a bit of movement. we see an eye for an eye the the movement this is when i said earlier i was going to compare it to another 2019 film the vertical storytelling in something like parasite for example where we follow a poor family down sort of in the in the basement area of a street 
and then we go up the stairs and up towards the mansion to represent the rich family. There's a bit of that here, especially when the camera sort of tracks up across the inside of the lighthouse to go up to the light to see... Uh, Even the Nightingale elsewhere. has bits in there. Yeah, yeah, Fazbear. vertical storytelling. I mean, the... Same similar aspect ratio. Very similar. Yeah. And will horror, horror, horrify you in different ways. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I just remembered that scene. You know, the, the funniest thing about that film, not to get mm. too much on a tangent, right, but it's yeah. like, I was like, oh, I'm talking to my mum, and I'm like, you have to watch The Nightingale. And I'm like, but when we watch it, I'm going to be like... Just brace yourself. This is good. this is some of the. I'm not gonna lie. It's got some of the most sickening scenes I've seen in cinema. Yeah, yeah. Um, like a moment that gave me an audible gasp in a cinema. Like, oh, like yeah, yeah. that reaction. And oh, this, I remember that. Don't and, worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say you were sitting next we were to me, right there. <laughs> and we knew it was coming. <laughs> I'm glad we sat towards the front because we didn't get to see all the people probably leaving behind us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was people great. that their preview screen or the premiere screen. People walked out on that scene. Yeah. Whereas, whereas this film kind of gives you a lot of ugh reactions, right? Yeah. Like ick factors a lot of the time. Yeah, because even like the way they play with like seaweed and stuff like that, just the visuals, the mud trekking through mud. Yeah, you're not, supposed, like you're not supposed to be comfortable, but it's not out of like a shock horror sense. It's just yeah. this is not a very fun place to be. No, and, no. and these people are albeit probably no different from you know you or me in that exact context but yeah it's icky it's icky yeah it's meant to be icky yeah, sort of like well, he's kind of shrugging yeah shiver in, in ways like that absolutely yeah. Yeah. what would you like to move into highlight scenes sure my highlight scene and this goes to not only willem dafoe's performance which we've talked about but just his and this is again so if anthony hopkins for example in this role i don't think it would work as well is the way they use his face in certain framings. Like, they really found a way to, like, crystallize and stone his face so it has a very particular shape. And it's very evident when he's being buried and the way the camera, like, sort of seeps into the the burial or the coffin, if you will. It's not really a coffin, but, you know, that burial. Shallow grave. Yeah, exactly, as the dirt's going on his face. And I love the way it forms his face. He keeps going. He keeps monologuing. He's got bloody half half a... a bucket of dirt down his throat yeah. he's just still going i was like wow the commitment to that yeah. is just impressive he's getting it's getting poor on his face and you part of you <laughs> wants to be like you want to feel like someone off camera is going oh so sorry i'm doing this i'm so sorry. i thought i was like is it actually robert patterson from i the would dirt say, look it, it, with this film and it's true striving for mm. authenticity that is 100% Robert Patterson. Yeah, good call. I think and I like uh, they would be people like, this is dead serious. No, but like, I imagine this set was, I don't want to, like saying not a fun set to be on is incorrect, but it would have been a highly professional set, I reckon. Very serious set. Yeah. Well, not, environmentally, it, it was an absolute bloody nightmare. Yeah. I like, can imagine. I imagine. Because it was all location, yeah. real conditions, all of that. A lot of, it would have been like game face on from like, shooting time and the only time yeah. you might get a reprieve would be probably if yeah because they were like i mean there's apparently earlier in the film in that monologue he doesn't blink for two minutes straight yeah his first um cursing i think was aware of that yeah it's crazy yeah like, and they're, they're dedicated performance that man is a madman. you like, could easily argue career high performances for both of them uh, like for, i haven't i, I, I haven't seen say. a lot of willem dafoe's films yeah. but i know you have a favorite but 
out of well, the ones I, I, I have two seen. that are better than this film I Interesting. think At Eternity's Gate and um, which he did in the previous year 2018 right. and Florida Project was in the same year yeah I, so like I said I still those two one, are yeah. probably for me his peak performances for Patterson yeah I mean Good Time still probably still the safety safety right or the ro- like he's really good in the rover because you know playing a special needs you know that's, that takes and he does it okay. right he doesn't do it inappropriately by any stretch but definitely and uh, up up there with career performances if either of them um you know this would be in their not to be too morbid but it would be in their memoriam yeah. uh, video package <laughs> right it's the best way of describing it yeah um, no exactly um it's yeah a video package film <laughs> absolutely so what what would be your highlight scene in that case Ooh. I almost skipped over and I was like, wait, no, we haven't heard it yet. <laughs> no. Um, I think it's that one scene where they're... It's, it's interesting because there's a lot of like dialogue scenes you could go to. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the shot of both of them hunched over under the desk before the flood just bursts through. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. It's a great shot. And then the subsequent scene that follows it where he snaps and like we fi- Winslow finally hits his breaking point and he you know, goes in that big rant and he ties it off with just the farts. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty... like, And then obviously that leads to the final sort of like push. But yeah. that scene of them just cackling and laughing as they're completely drunk and then just the water, just what a shot. Yeah, and that's brilliant. It comes right at you. Yeah, <laughs> what? What? It's all what? cause and effect. I mean, earlier <laughs> when they were more sober and more in the right headspace, they battened down the hatches. But um, you know, they hadn't <laughs> done it at that point because they had lost their <laughs> lost their marbles. So yeah, yeah that'd probably be it's it. It's falling apart around them. No, absolutely. That's no, fair enough. No dramas. Well, the lighthouse is currently out on Netflix. Here you go. I have it on DVD. I don't think there's a Blu-ray. Not an easily obtainable Blu-ray. Yeah. Or in wide release, yeah. Which is so. which is a shame. But um, speaking of streaming devices, Jack, what's new to streaming de- devices? Devices? Ooh. Streaming platforms and... New to Samsung cinema. Galaxy. And cinemas. <laughs> um, coming to Netflix this week, we have Nightbooks, which sees Alex, a fan of scary stories, forced to tell a spine-tingling tale every night or stay trapped with his new friend in a Wicked Witch's magical apartment forever. Sars Christian Ritter... As the witch. Coming to stand this week, keeping a theme is The Witches, the 1990 version, as well as Holy Motors, The Mask, The Goonies, Minari, which, did I mention Minari? Oh, I was meant to mention Minari earlier because it's like Minari actually has sort of similar themes to this film in terms of the pursuit of self-sustainability, Robert Patterson's character wanting to provide a roof under his head by going to this out-of-the-way job um, in terms of main character goals, but Minari takes in a very different... Mm. <laughs> different approach, way different. A bit more wholesome in that in yeah. that version. Um, but that still coming... ends in a burning sensation. That's though. true. <laughs> cheeky, cheeky. Uh, so you can watch that and stand, and of course, Streamline, which we only talked about just last week. Yeah. So there you go. What's Streamline? Listen to my podcast. Um, Isle of Dogs is coming to Disney Plus, which I was surprised. Apparently, it was a licensing deal because Wes Anderson's other films are on Disney Plus, but they're all there now. So well done. Actually, this is a really strange thing that went by in the last week, right? Oh, okay. Um, this is a quick tangent, but it does tie into Wes Anderson. Um, oh, okay. Cool. So, 
He's strangely, he's the, du- for his the, new film, isn't the he? Dubai Tourism Board released a video in the last week by uh, directed by Craig Gillespie, starring Zac Efron and Jessica Alba. Right? Uh, and I don't know where this is going. It was a very interesting, <laughs> and it completely caught me off guard because I was like, I watched it, and it was like a trailer, mm. and I'll have to show it to you after the show. Yeah, sure. Because you get completely um, like, I originally didn't know this was like a tourism sponsored video, and it had right. like complete Wes Anderson aesthetic like I'll show it to you to a T it's like mm-hmm. the biggest homage or, or or copycat routine I think I've ever seen yeah and I was like has Wes Anderson got another film coming out like I right. got to right to the end it was like director Craig Gillespie I went well that just feels like he's blatantly copying it and then it turns out <laughs> it's not even that it was just a, an extended a really expensive advertisement starring Jessica Alba and Zach Efron for Tourism Dubai. And I was like... So weird. What an elaborate rabbit hole. But yes, obviously, we, you know, with French Dispatch coming out, it kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's funny because wasn't there a similar thing with Australia Tourism? And they had like all these movie stars. And people thought it was going to be a big movie, but then it didn't end up happening. Yeah, maybe it's the same sort of effect. But yeah. It, it did. I was like... I was like, this film feels like... It actually was like quite a compelling like trailer story. I was like, oh, that's right. like a nice... It was like a rom-com pitch. And yeah, like, yeah. And like, I went on the search, I was like, oh, Dubai Tourism has released this rom-com style trailer <laughs> to advertise like Dubai, like come to Dubai. And I was that, like... So it's exactly the same. That's yeah. amazing. And I just completely... I was like, wow, well, I was completely fueled. I was like, when's this movie coming out? Yeah. I want to see this. <laughs> Jessica Alba, Zac Efron in a... Wes Anderson style. They gotcha. Well, Wes Anderson actually is casting his next film, including Scarlett Johansson. So, to all the people saying she has no career after a Marvel suing game, well, clearly she does. So, let's go on that one. That's totally... (laughs) Who who thinks that? What idiot thinks that? People who only watch Marvel films, that's it. She's got no career now that it's over. It's like, oh yeah, just, you know, she was nominated for two Emmys in the same year, but no biggie. Not for a Marvel film either, by the way. Um, coming to Paramount Plus, several new seasons of TV shows, including I wanted to mention this one, the first season of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Is this going to turn the tide, Zeke? Are we that curious to rewatch Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, love I mean, I'm mid season three of My Name Is Earl, and boy, have we taken a turn! Oh no, uh, not not going great. Uh, I'll talk about it more next week on the show. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I reckon you can wrap it up and then then talk about it. if yeah. there's only four seasons. Or something yeah, like I'm that. at three. Now, yeah, so I'll probably be up. wrapped by the end. Yeah, coming to Prime this week. Everybody's talking about Jamie, which is the feature adaptation of the musical about a teenager from England who wants to be a drag queen. And finally, coming to cinemas, Hoyts are doing screenings for animated films like Inside Out, Up, and Zootopia. Don't know what the deal is there because they're not all from. You know, Pixar, for example. Yeah, so, yeah, a bit of a strange week, but it's happening. Uh, coming to Luna, we can finally see Pig, which is the Nicolas Cage film about him playing a truffle hunter in Oregon wilderness who undergoes a journey to find the person who stole his beloved pig. I'm hearing excellent things about that. We're finally getting over here in Australia, so very excited about that. And lastly, big deal is the wake-up call about the frightening extent to which money has infiltrated Australian politics, hosted by Christian Van Vuren. Um... I don't know. This sounds like a Chasers type thing, but it seems to be like a very confronting in your face. Here's a documentary about where your taxpayer money is going in Australia. And we know it's pretty crap, so mm. <laughs> we we can imagine that this film's going to out it some more. But um, yeah, there you go. No it's dramas. Happening. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, mm, Jake. We're no. actually moving into a director's corner. 
Uh, who's the already, director? Already, Zeke. Already. Yeah, already. Uh, <laughs> who's the director, Jake? And what's the film we're watching? So we're going to do Richard Linklater, one of your favourites. And uh, this is exciting, Zeke. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking about Before Sunrise. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just going to haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today and we're looking for something fun to do. Sprechenzi English? Yeah, of course, yeah. Because uh, we speak German for a change. Now I'm going to call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay? Okay. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train, and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. He has beautiful blue eyes, nice pink lips, frizzy hair. <laughs> I love it. I like to feel his eyes on me when I look away. You couldn't possibly know why a night like this is so important to my life right now. But it is, since we're never going to see each other again. When traveling on a train to Europe, Jesse, an American man, meets Celine, a French woman, and the two decide to spend the night in Vienna together. This, of course, spawns what is why they're considered one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. And I'm excited, Zeke, because we're going to... We're going to tackle all three of these over time. We are. So, um, this is really interesting. Um, mm. We sort of spitballed and came to this idea late last week, and we're actually really excited for it because it ties in. Obviously, next week of the show, we're going to be focusing solely on Before Sunrise and yep. Richard Linklater's directorial style over all of his films. So, um, I personally, I know we're going to be tackling the other two films. We'll not be watching the other two films in the Ooh, next I like, week. I like this. I'm only going to be watching them as we do them on the show. So, you know, much like that nine-year differential, we mm. might be doing a certain theme on that and we'll probably go, you know, talk about that a little bit more in the preceding weeks, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because um, we don't know when we might see Before Sunset or... Before, Before midnight, midnight yeah. you know, much like when the films came out. So we're going for a bit yeah. of authenticity ourselves. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Uh, and and I and I so I've ha- I've I talked about this not long ago, maybe maybe ten episodes ago, something like mm. that. Earlier in the year, I did watch all three back to back to back. Yes. Um, and I will say it is shocking to me that these films are made, sort of not knowing that the, this before sunrise was just sort of made, and it was like, oh, we're going to make this film that means something to us. And then, you know, several years later, oh, you know what, let, let, we have an idea, let's do another one, and then mm. so on and so forth. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to mu- keep you in the dark, much like those films did yeah. Yeah, for the the time between all three of them. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking about Linklater and that film in particular next week. Um, but, exciting. you know, there's plenty of other Linklater films we can talk about yeah. with that directorial call. You have no excuse now not to watch School of Rock. Yeah, I think that's going to be the other film I watched this week for him because that will give me at least, like, 12 to go off. Though. I reckon our family has seen School of Rock <laughs> maybe, like, 30 times. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's incredible. You know what it is? It's is? I'm just not the biggest Jack Black fan. Like, I'm just not. It's right. kind of He's in the same category as Adam Sandler for me. Actually, Adam Sandler's on yeah, another Yeah, that's level. harsh. That's harsh comparison. I don't... What, what is it? I mean... Well, like, I, I feel like Adam Sandler more 
overtly goes out of his way to make schlock. Like, he's done incredible films, of course. We mentioned Punch Drug Love earlier in this yeah. one, but I feel like Jack Black, it, it doesn't feel like he intentionally makes schlock. And and School of Rock, like it's it, it's not like a masterpiece. So your Gulliver film. Travels just, and your Shallow well, Howls. And... See, I don't know if he did Gulliver's or I, I Travels, Gulliver's Travels. Well, I, too- I don't think he did that on, like to be crap. I don't think he before. I mean, if you look at the bad. cast too, it's like Emily Blunt and uh, yeah. Jason Segels. They so might have got tricked. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> No more, no movie forty three situation. No. Oh God, no! That so has not. to be done on this show at some point. Like just the the most head scratcher episode one hundred and four. Well, we said we wanted to do we wanted to do the room. When did we want to do the room? Was it April Fools? It was like we pitched that. That's, that's a while away it's, to land on a Monday. April Fools. That was it. That's yeah. a little while away. Um, <laughs> do the room one time, but yeah, yeah. no, I, I think um, it's just been the reason why I haven't done that, but. Um, yeah, so we'll be uh, talking and covering all that next week on the show. Mm. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Before Sunrise.